Well, this morning I am in a f- the fourth week of a sermon series going through the book of Philippians, which is Paul's letter to the church at Philippi, a church that he started uh, around the year 50 or so AD, wrote this letter around 60, 64 AD. Uh, he had a deep affection for this church. If you've been part of the series, you've seen just how much he loved the people of this church that he founded. And this morning we're going to be in verses 12 through 19. I'm working my way slowly through the book of Philippians. I want to start, though, in the beginning just to lay the context out. We'll read from chapter 1, verse 1, all the way to verse 19, focusing this morning on verses 12 through 19. So here we go, Philippians chapter 1. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus at Philippi, together with the overseers and deacons, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. It is right for me to feel this way about all of you since I have you in my heart. For whether I am in chains or defending and confirming the gospel, all of you share in God's grace with me. God can testify how I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. And this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight, so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless until the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Now begins verse 12, the section we're going to look at this morning. Now I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. As a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. Because of my chains, most of the brothers in the Lord have been encouraged to speak the word of God more courageously and fearlessly. It is true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. The latter do so in love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former preach Christ out of selfish ambition not sincerely, supposing that they can stir up trouble for me while I'm in chains. But what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached. And because of this, I rejoice. Yes, and I will continue to rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help given by the Spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. Let me pray before we continue. Please, Lord, we pray that you would open our ears and open our hearts and help us to hear and understand what this means and what it means for our lives today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So Paul begins this section by referring to what has happened to me. And up to this point, we're not sure what has happened to him. But in a couple of verses, he goes on to tell what it is that has happened to him. He's in prison. He's writing this letter from jail. He's been unjustly found guilty of insurrection or accused of insurrection and of creating an uprising. And so he's in jail right now, probably in Rome, in jail. And if church history is correct, he's never going to get out of this jail. He's eventually going to die and be executed. So Paul is writing this from jail. And so he's talking about what happened to me and wants them to encourage them about what's going on regarding what has happened to him. Not only do we learn that he's in jail, being unjustly persecuted, but we also hear that he's being slandered, that there are other Christians 
that are taking this opportunity to basically slander him, to use this as an opportunity to say, you know what, that Paul, look at him, he's in jail. He's not a real apostle. He's not a real man of God. If he were a real man of God, would he be in jail? And so he's in jail, unjustly persecuted, and he's got people out there, other believers, who are slandering his name. How might you feel if you were in his shoes? How might you feel if you were in jail against, you know, not, not for anything you've done, anything you deserve, and you've got people out there taking the opportunity to slander you? It might be natural to feel, what, frustrated, angry, vengeful, bitter. God, I want to be out there sharing the gospel. There's so many people I want to be telling, and here I am stuck in this jail, not because of anything I've done. And all these people who are slandering my name, God, visit your vengeance on them. Set them straight. But you hear none of that, do you? You read this letter, and even though it might be natural to hear frustration and anger and bitterness and vengeance, instead, what do you hear? Let's read it through again. Pay attention. What are the emotions? What are the convictions you hear coming from Paul? Now, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. As a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. Because of my chains, most of the brothers in the Lord have been encouraged to speak the word of God more courageously and fearlessly. It is true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. The latter do so in love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing that they can stir up trouble for me while I am in chains. But what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached. And because of this, I rejoice. Yes, and I will continue to rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help given by the Spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. So again, he's in jail, unjustly persecuted, being slandered by those out there. And you might imagine that if you were in his shoes, it would be natural to feel frustrated or angry, bitter, vengeful. And instead, what do you see coming out of Paul's pen, out of his mouth here? He's encouraging others. He's encouraged by what he sees God doing. That the gospel is being advanced, that the guards are hearing the gospel, that those who see him are being emboldened in their faith and not afraid. And that even those who are preaching from false motives are still preaching the name of Christ. And so what does he say? I rejoice. And he has hope that he's going to be delivered. Now, he's not rejoicing that he is in jail, but he's rejoicing at what God is doing through his imprisonment. That even though he's in jail, God is using that to advance the gospel in so many ways. And so instead of anger and bitterness and vengeance, we see courage and joy, and hope. Now, most of you, I am guessing, will never find yourself in prison unjustly persecuted. But we all go through times where we end up in a place where we don't understand why, where we're going through suffering that seems maybe unjust. We don't understand what God is up to. Maybe even we have others looking down on us because of our situation, slandering us. Some of you may be dealing with health challenges right now where you don't understand why or what God is up to. 
Others may be relational challenges or financial challenges or just personal challenges, job challenges. There's so many things we can go through that we find ourselves suffering and we don't understand why. We don't understand what God is up to. We feel like the sheep in a story told by Elizabeth Elliot. She was a prominent Christian writer, speaker in the 20th century. Her missionary husband, Jim Elliot, was murdered as a 28-year-old man along with four other missionaries by the people they were witnessing to. And she tells a story about visiting friends of hers in northern Wales who owned a sheep farm. She shared about how the sheep are vulnerable to be eating, being eaten, by death, eaten to death by insects and parasites. So once every year, the shepherd has to take the sheep to a huge vat of antiseptic and completely submerge the sheep. And so the farmer, in order to save the sheep from death, has to hold the sheep underwater in the antiseptic until they've been disinfected. And this is how Elizabeth Elliot put it. One by one, John seized the animals. They would struggle to climb out the side, and Mac, the sheepdog, would snarl and snap at their faces to force them back under. When they tried to climb up the ramp in a panicky way at the far end, John, the farmer, would catch them, spin them around, force them under again, holding them, holding their ears, eyes, and nose submerged for a few seconds. And as their lord and master was pushing their head under, drowning them at least as far as they could tell, their panicky little eyes would look up over the edge of the vat, and it was easy to see what they were thinking. What is God doing? And she continued to say this, I've had some experiences in my life which have made me feel very sympathetic to those poor sheep. There are times I couldn't figure out any reason for the treatment I was getting from my great shepherd whom I trusted. And like these sheep, I didn't have a hint of an explanation. Ever feel like that? Sometimes that's the way it is, going through these things, maybe like Paul at a prison watching what's happening and wondering where is God and what is he up to and how could he be allowing this to happen? So as we look at Paul, he's responding not with anger and bitterness and vengeance. He's responding with courage and joy and hope. What is it? What is it about Paul? What is it that we can learn from this about responding to the suffering and the challenges in our own life with a similar kind of courage and joy and hope? There's three things I want to talk about this morning. Three things I see from this passage. The first is this, that Paul's meaning, purpose, and identity are found in God and the gospel of Jesus Christ, not in anything in this world. What is it that allows Paul to face this suffering with courage and joy and hope? I think first and foremost, it's that his meaning, his purpose, and identity, they're found in God and the gospel of Jesus Christ. They're not found in anything in this world. I think the one thing that strikes me more than anything else in this passage is Paul's complete lack of seeming concern for his own comfort or ego, right? Do you see any concern in this passage for his own comfort, his own freedom, his own ego? He's basically communicating this passage, I am in prison, but because of my chains, the gospel is going forth with great speed and accuracy, and it's amazing. I'm on the inside of Rome I am sharing the gospel from the inside out, watching these prisoners these, and these guards come to faith. And my fellow Christians, as they've seen what God is doing, they're emboldened. They know that nothing can stop the spread of the gospel. Nothing can stop the power of God. And so they're sharing even more boldly than they were before because of my chains. In other words, he's saying, I will gladly 
give up my comfort and my freedom if it means greater glory and fame for Jesus and more people come into faith in him. I will gladly give up my comfort and my freedom if it means greater glory and fame for Jesus. And then he goes on to say, hey, I know there's some people out there who are slandering my name and using this as an opportunity to put me down, but they're still preaching Jesus and more people are coming to faith in him. And so if my reputation is going to be trashed in the process of more people coming to faith, then so be it. I will gladly give up my comfort, my freedom, and my reputation if it means greater glory and fame for Jesus and more people coming to faith in him. I'm amazed. I just see this, and I'm amazed by his complete lack of concern for his own comfort and freedom and ego and reputation because I have a hard time relating to any of that. I think about how hard it is, how much I love my comfort and freedom, what it takes for me to go share the love of God in a nursing home or sit with someone who's difficult to listen to or share the gospel with someone who might reject me because I value my comfort and my freedom more than I value God's glory and the salvation of others so often that I'm nothing like Paul. And don't even get me started on my own ego, how Paul was willing to lay down his reputation and his ego if it meant the gospel going forth. Four years ago, there was another church planted in town, Generation Church. There's another church, Vox Church, where just about every 20-something has gone over the last 10 years, leaving our church and other churches. You don't think I have to battle with my ego every day to pray for and encourage them and speak well of them and not, you know, make comments about other churches to somehow in my heart hope they fail and I succeed. Paul calls out these preachers for their selfish ambition. And I look in the mirror and I say, yep, that same selfish ambition lives in me and has to be crucified daily. That I am fully aware that ungodly selfish ambition lives in me, that my ego gets in the way of God's kingdom every day. Paul, on the one hand, just whatever it takes, trash my reputation, I don't care. If the gospel goes forth, great. If it has to go through other people while I'm in jail, praise God, so be it. On the other hand, there's people like me who have a hard time laying down their own ego, their own pride, and just rejoicing that the gospel goes forth through as many churches as it does. Why is Paul able to face prison and slander with such courage, joy, and hope? Because his identity, his meaning, his purpose, it is in God and the gospel. It is not in anything in this world. His identity is secure in who God says that he is. So if others slander him, it won't shake him. He knows who he is in Christ. And his goal in life is God's glory, seeing people come to faith, not his own comfort and freedom. And so if he winds up in prison, so be it. It's not going to shake him. Just, it's just incredible how kingdom-centered Paul is. He's not self-centered. He wants to see God's kingdom advance, whatever it takes. And I think the reason that so many of us handle suffering so badly is because our meaning and our purpose and our identity are in the things of this world and the people of this world. They're not found in God. They're not found in the gospel. So what happens when suffering happens? We become frustrated, angry, bitter, depressed, vengeful, 
because the things that we love and hang on to and look to for our joy and our identity are shaken, are attacked. It's attacking our comfort and our joy. Tim Keller put it this way. He said, if your ultimate love and joy is found in the treasures of this world, then suffering will rob you of your joy and make you sadder and madder. But if your ultimate love and joy is found in God, then suffering will drive you deeper into the source of that joy. If your family is your life, then you're going to be devastated if something bad happens to your family. Or if there's discord, if there's strife, you're going to live with great anxiety trying to protect your family as much as you possibly can from all the evils out in the world. If your job is your joy, your security, then what happens when your job is threatened or you lose your job? It's your life that is threatened, your security, your comfort, your joy is threatened. The difference between loving your family and having your family above God, loving your job and having your job above God or anything else above God. I can still remember in my life when I realized this distinction, I became a believer at 18 years old. And a year later, the the girl I was dating broke up with me. And in the past, any romantic breakup or rejection would have crushed me, left me utterly depressed, probably crying in bed listening to The Cure. But this time around, this time around I realized I was sad, but I wasn't crushed. I was sad, but I was going to be okay. That something had shifted since becoming a Christian, that my life was no longer in romantic relationships. My life was in Christ. My joy was in Christ. My comfort was in Him. And so going through something was hard, but it was not crushing. It was not going to destroy me. So where are you locating your hope, your identity, your meaning, your purpose? It could be in a job, in a relationship, a sport, your looks, your possessions, your job. It could be anywhere. But if your ultimate love and joy and identity is found in anything other than God, then you're in trouble. You're not going to be able to handle suffering and loss and challenges with the same kind of courage and joy and hope that Paul displays. Paul loves being an apostle, but not as much as he loved God and seeing joy, seeing Jesus glorified. Paul loved being with the people he loved, but not as much as he loved seeing Jesus glorified. So what if God calls you to a life of faithfulness to him that includes singleness, no children, while you're surrounded by married people with children? What if he calls you to a life where you're only going to make just enough money to get by while other people drive by you in fancy cars on their way to high-paying jobs, living in their big homes? What if you have to live with depression, anxiety, or an injury or illness that keeps you from becoming the person you wish you could be while others seem to be healthy? Would he be enough for you? Is your life, your joy, your purpose, your identity in him? and not in the things of this world? What if God called me to pray and serve faithfully and every other church experienced revival and this one did not and stayed small and God just wanted me to stay faithful to that? Would that be enough for me? His reputation above my own. The more you put your joy, your hope, 
your identity in the things of this world, the harder suffering is going to be for you. There's a story that goes like this. A logger went out to the forest to cut down some trees, and he noticed a bird had made a nest for her family in one of the trees. And the logger continued to strike that tree repeatedly with his axe until the bird flew away to another tree to build a nest. But then that logger struck that tree repeatedly until the bird flew away to another tree. And the logger continued this process until finally the bird landed on a high rock and built her nest there. Because everything in this world is coming down. Every tree in the forest is coming down. Everything in this world, nothing is secure to put your identity, to put your love, to put your hope, to put your joy. Build your life on the rock of Jesus Christ. Find your meaning and purpose there. And whatever suffering comes your way, you will be able to handle it. So that is the first thing. Facing suffering with courage, joy, and hope. Find your meaning, your purpose, your identity in Christ and the gospel. Second reason I think Paul is able to face suffering with courage, joy, and hope is that he knows that God works all things together for good for those who love him. Once again, Paul's been unjustly arrested, imprisoned in a Roman jail, slandered by those out there, and most people would feel depressed, frustrated, angry, bitter, vengeful. But instead, Paul is available to God. He's ready for whatever it is God wants him to do. And so he encourages the Philippians, don't worry. What is happening to me here is happening for good. There's three things in particular that I see that are good coming out of this. First, he says, I've got a captive audience in prison. They think they've imprisoned me, but they're the prisoners. They are chained to me. They can't go anywhere. They have to hear the gospel repeatedly from me. He said, I have got a captive audience and I am reaching Rome from the inside out, preaching to these guards. And that's good. And secondly, he says, the other good thing is that I see the believers all over are encouraged. They see that the word of God continues to spread even though I'm in prison and they know that nothing can stop the gospel. Nothing can stop the power of God. Not even imprisonment, not even death. Nothing can stop the gospel. So he says, this is good. Even though being in prison is not good, God is using it for good. And there's one more good that Paul doesn't even realize, but I think with the benefit of hindsight, we can realize yeah, think about Paul in prison. He's like, the guards are like, okay, enough. I don't want to hear anymore, okay? Stop sharing about this Jesus. So Paul's like, well, what else can I do? Well, I can write some letters. I'll write one to the Ephesians. I'll write one to the Philippians. I'll write one to the Colossians. I'll write one to Philemon, my friend. Those are the four letters that we have from the Roman prison. And here we are 2,000 years later, reading one of those letters, Philippians, one of the letters that he wrote from his time in prison there. Incredible, right? Here is Paul saying, God, I want to be out there sharing the gospel. There's hundreds, thousands out there who have not heard. Why am I in prison? And here's God giving Paul an opportunity to spend the time crafting these letters that will be sent out that thousands of years later will be read by millions, billions. Maybe God knows what he's doing. Maybe God is working for good even when we can't see it. If we would be available, if we'd open our eyes. And in verse 19, Paul says that he believes he'll be delivered. You know, he, he's, he has hope that he'll be delivered. But we're going to find out in the next few verses, he knows that even if he's not delivered, even if he dies, 
God will deliver it. God will acquit him. He'll be found not guilty by God because of Jesus Christ. He will be with God forever. To live as Christ and to die as gain. God is always working for good. One of the most important things to know when you're going through suffering is to trust and believe that, right? Amen? God is always working all things together for good. Even if prison is evil, God can use prison for good. God's not the author of evil. The Bible tells us there is an enemy, Satan. And as Jesus put it in John 10.10, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come they may have life and have it to the full. Right? The thief's coming to steal and kill and destroy, but I am going to able to turn all of that for good. And so Paul writes to the Romans in 8.29, Romans 8.29, 28 and 29. We know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. When you read this passage closely and you ask the question, what is the good that God is working for? You see that the good he's talking about is not the things of this world. It's not good health, lots of money, job promotions, all the worldly stuff that our hearts desire. If that were the good, it would just be a false theology leading us right back to what I'm talking against, which is not putting your heart and your joy and your identity in the things of this world. It's not about that. And many of you are well aware that there are many teachers and preachers out there who are pointing you back to the things of this world, claiming that the good God wants to do in your life is just that, the health, the wealth, the promotion, the all of that stuff. I'll just give you one example of millions I could have picked from. This is from Joseph Prince. Let me get my televangelist voice on. Hold on, ready? <laughs> you are destined to reign in life. You are called by God to be a success, to enjoy wealth, to enjoy health, to enjoy a life of victory. When you, re- <laughs> when, you, when you reign in life, you reign over sin, over poverty, over every curse and over every sickness and every disease. The Christian should never be sick. Or if you do get sick, physical health is guaranteed as long as you have enough faith. Right? If I say it in that voice, it sounds like it's real, right? But what do you think Paul would say? If someone was preaching this to Paul, what would he say? He'd say, beloved... Stop putting your hope and your joy in the things of this world. Stop putting your hope in worldly success and wealth and health and victory. Put your hope in Christ and the gospel. God is always working for our good. But again, Romans 8, 28 to 29 tells us this is the good. To be conformed to the likeness of his son. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his son. That is the good he's working for in your life. That no matter what you go through, whether you're in prison or free, whether people slander your name or build you up, he is going to work through all of it to make you more like Jesus. He's always working for good to make you more like Jesus. Another way he works for good is this. He equips us to minister to others Sometimes we go through times of suffering and we don't understand why, but then on the other side, we see that he used it to prepare us so that we might equip, he might equip us to minister to others. 
2 Corinthians 1, 3 through 7, he says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our troubles so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves have received from God. For just as the sufferings of Christ flow over into our lives, so also through Christ our comfort overflows. If we are distressed, it is for your comfort and salvation. If we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which produces in you patient endurance of the same sufferings we suffer. And our hope for you is firm because we know that just as you share in our sufferings, so also you share in our comfort. In chapter 1 here, he tells the Corinthians how life was so hard. Life was so hard for him that it says they despaired even of life. They felt the sentence of death on them. They weren't reigning in life as Joseph Prince might say, they were feeling the despair that comes from trying to live in faithfulness but going through such hardships in this world. But he says, God allowed us to go through so that we put our faith and hope in him and trust in him. And now that he's brought us that comfort, now we can minister to others who are going through similar hardships with the comfort we have received. Again, sometimes you don't know why you're going through suffering, but one of the ways that you can be encouraged to persevere with courage And hope and joy is to know that he's always working for good. And often that good is to equip you to minister to others. Brendan Manning put it it this way in a play about, wrote about a play by Thornton Wilder. There's a scene in Thornton Wilder's play, The Angel That Troubled the Water. The scene is a doctor comes to the pool every day wanting to be healed of his melancholy and his gloom and his sadness. Finally, the angel appears. The doctor, he's a medical doctor, goes to step into the water. The angel blocks his entrance and says, no, step back. This healing is not for you. The doctor pleads, but I've got to get into this water. I can't live this way. The angel says, no, this moment is not for you. And he says, but how can I live this way? And the angel says to him, doctor, without your wounds, where would your power be? It is your melancholy that makes your low voice tremble into the hearts of men and women. The very angels themselves cannot persuade the wretched and blundering children of this earth as can one human being broken on the wheels of living. In love's service, only wounded soldiers can serve. There is a weight that comes from the suffering you've been through. There's a substance that you're not just speaking head knowledge, but you're speaking from life experience and what God has brought you through or is bringing you through. We have a men's group fight club that meets every Wednesday night at 7 o'clock. And when it's at its best, that's what's happening is men who have been through stuff are encouraging men who are going through stuff. That's what it is at its best. God comforting others out of the comfort that we've received. God is always working for your good. Sometimes it's to conform you to the image of his son. Sometimes it's to prepare you and equip you to minister to others. And sometimes if your eyes, or ears are, eyes and ears are open like Paul's, you might find out he's got you exactly where you need to be for a purpose you could never have imagined. Paul would never have imagined that those letters he was writing would become letters that were written, read by billions for centuries. But God knows what he's doing. He's always working for good. And the last point is this, that Paul knows he's following a Lord who suffered and died unjustly for him. What is going to help you have courage and joy and hope in the midst of suffering? You need to know that you belong to a Lord who suffered and died unjustly for you. This is not just random stuff. You're following a Lord 
who already walked the road ahead of you. In the prayer, God and myself in the book Valley of Vision says this, whatever cross I am required to bear, let me see him carrying a heavier. Whatever disease or injury you may experience, whatever relational, financial, personal challenge you may be going through, it isn't going to compare to what Jesus went through for you. And I've mentioned the gospel of Jesus Christ multiple times already in the sermon, but in case you're unfamiliar with that term, he defines it, Paul, in 1 Corinthians 15, where he says, Now, brothers, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel you are saved, if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Otherwise you have believed in vain. For what I received I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Peter and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. This gospel that Paul is so passionate about, that he's put his identity and his, his hope and his joy in, his meaning and his purpose is this, Christ died for our sins. That we were all separated from a holy God by our sins, destined for eternal separation. And none of us on our own good works could ever measure up and make ourselves right with God. But God loved us so much that he sent his son, Jesus Christ, the eternal son of God, who took on flesh, who suffered and lived the perfect life and then died on a cross in our place taking the penalty that we deserve. He died for our sins in our place, rose from the dead to conquer sin and death, to offer us eternal life and a right relationship with God. Jesus willingly suffered and gave his life, dealing with an unjust persecution, if there ever was an unjust persecution, to save us from eternal separation from God. So what happens as a believer is this. Not only are we empowered to endure suffering and hardships with hope, courage, joy even, but we even are empowered to go out and willingly suffer for others the way Jesus did for us. To not hide away from discomfort, but to go out and be willing to lay down our lives and give ourselves and sacrifice ourselves for others. 1 John three sixteen to 18. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. If anyone has material possessions and sees his brother or sister in need but has no pity on him or her, how can the love of God be in him? Dear children, let us love, not love with words or tongue, but with actions and in truth. In John 13, 12 through 15, when Jesus had finished washing his disciples' feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I have done for you? He asked them, you call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. And now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I've set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. See what we're getting at here? This is not just about being able to endure suffering. This is about being willing to go and suffer for others, being willing to sacrifice for others, 
as Christ willingly sacrificed his life for us. That is how the church spread and grew the way it did. As the emperor of Rome, Julian, said, nothing has contributed to the progress of the superstition of the Christians as their charity to strangers. The impious Galileans provide not only for their own poor, but for ours as well. Because there was a church willing to go out and follow their Lord in sacrificing and serving others. Didn't matter about their reputation, didn't matter about their comfort, didn't matter about their freedom. They just wanted to honor Jesus, the one who had given his life for them. So let me wrap it up. How are you handling suffering in your life? How are you doing with the hardships that have come your way? We see in Paul this example of someone who is able to face great suffering and slander and persecution with courage and joy and hope. And the reason is this. He found his ultimate meaning and purpose and identity in God and the gospel, not in anything in this world. He knew that God is always working all things together for good, conforming him to the image of his son, equipping him to minister to others. And his eyes were on Jesus, the Lord, who suffered and died unjustly for him. Let's pray. And the worship team can come forward so we can respond and worship. Oh God, we need your Holy Spirit and we need your help. We confess that our eyes are on the things of this world, that our heart is tied up with the things and the people of this world in a way that gives us great anxiety, can give us great anger and bitterness when things don't go our way, when we experience suffering. We confess that to you. Lift our eyes up this morning to the Lord Jesus who suffered and died for us. Help us to find our meaning and our purpose and our identity in him and to trust that you are always working all things together for good. Encourage, empower us by your Holy Spirit today for whatever we are going through. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.